Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Is the universe, at least this one, made mostly of plasma? Can plasma have conscious awareness? Are life forms based on plasma responsible for what we think of as paranormal beings? Hello and welcome to the 999th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live, uh, coming to you via uh, YouTube, uh, TalkStream Live on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I always always forget that one for some reason. I'm Ben and that was Paul, and today we bring you a new guest with a mind-wrenching scientific with mind-wrenching scientific ideas. And to join us, you can call us from anywhere. That's 401-766-1240, or you can email paul at behindtheparanormal.com. Coming to us uh, from the U.K. today via Zoom is Professor Robert Temple, a Ph.D. academic who certainly isn't afraid of new ideas. Dr. Temple is the author of a dozen controversial books including The Serious Mystery, The Serious as in the Star, New Scientific Evidence of Alien Contact 5,000 Years Ago, and A New Science of Heaven, of the New Science of Plasma Physics is Shedding Light on Spiritual Experience, the center of our discussion today. His books have been translated into a total of 44 foreign languages. Dr. Temple is visiting Professor of uh, history and the history and philosophy of science at at Tsinghua University in Beijing and previously held an equivalent position at the University of Louisville, Kentucky. For many years, he was a science writer for the Sunday Times, The Guardian, and a science reporter for Time Life, as well as a frequent reviewer for Nature and profile writer for The New Scientist. He is a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society has been a member of the Egypt Exploration Society since the 1970s, as well as a member of uh, numerous other academic groups. Sometimes working with his wife, Olivia, he also has many media credentials. If you wonder why he doesn't have much of an English accent, it's because he's a native of Kentucky. His website, robert-temple.com. So, Dr. Robert Temple, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, howdy. I thought I'd better speak like a Kentucky, and or would you rather I spoke more English-like? Very good, yeah, we're... I'm very pleased to be um, on air with you like this, uh, because I know you're deep thinkers, and you have really great um, shows, and so it's, a, it's an honor for me to be here with the Enos. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I am going to start recording this because we're doing kind of a uh, seat of the pants no it's being recorded recording in progress okay well i'm just being sure all right okay so thank you dr temple uh ben what's your why don't i take the first question since hold on i may have just figured this out good well i'll ask the question anyway so what is plasma and is it really the basis of the physical universe and possibly the paranormal well, it might be a mistake to call the universe the physical universe, because it isn't. The universe is made of 99% plasma, in fact, 99.9%. In fact, some people say 99.99%. That's a lot of plasma. It and, is. Uh, 
It's not, it's not what you'd call physical, because when we speak of physical matter, we speak of the kind of matter that our bodies and planet are made of, which consists of atoms. But plasma does not consist of atoms. So this is a revolution in our thought, and that's why my book is called A New Science of Heaven, because we really need a new science. Our physics is a physics of atomic matter, which we call physical, and what we really need is a physics of plasma. So um, I expect the next thing you're going to do is ask me what plasma is. Well, yes. <laughs> yes. But fancy me knowing that. <laughs> well, plasma consists of particles, as indeed do atoms. Now, plasma is uh, cons cons consisting of electrons which have a negative charge, and when they flow, that's called electricity. Then it uh, contains protons, which have a positive charge. And in addition to that, uh, it consists of ions, that's I-O-N-S, which are often regarded as incomplete atoms. But um, I, I look at it the other way. I look upon atoms as value-added ions. Okay. Uh, when I first encountered your book... Uh, I thought of Sir Fred Hoyle, who uh, is the author of the panspermia theory that dust clouds, which you speculate about, uh, are responsible for spreading life throughout the universe. And lo and behold, in Chapter 2, uh, it seems that, that your uh, Sri Lankan co-author was mentored by Sir Fred Hoyle. Uh, how are your theories like his? Well, um Fred was a wonderful man, and his um, his his chief uh, student and 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 disciple was, and still is, my friend uh, Professor Chandra Vikramasinghe. That's a long, complicated Sri Lankan name, and um, it, he indeed uh, carries on uh, uh, the ideas which he and Fred evolved together about panspermia which means that life is spread throughout the universe. Um, and indeed, uh, as far as the Earth is concerned, um, it comes down through the atmosphere, having been deposited as dust uh, and uh, microbiota, as small life forms are called, in the higher atmosphere, by the <clears throat> passing tails of comets. Because comets are uh, looked upon as harboring life forms, inside them, and um, they volatilize as they come near the sun, and uh, bits stream off behind them and form the tails, because when they are far out in space, they don't have tails. The tail is caused by getting near to the sun. And, and so panspermia um, is an idea that uh, Fred and Chandra originated, uh, although uh, there were uh, um, preliminary... Uh, notions about that in antiquity, and, and I'm the one who wrote the paper called The Prehistory of Panspermia, which you can download from my entry on researchgate.net, where my technical papers are to be found, including one that I've uh, published, in, um, which suggests that there was never a big bang to the universe. And, and the idea that the universe was created from a central explosion uh, was called, as a, uh, using a term of abuse by Fred Hoyle, the Big Bang, because he said, oh, those 
silly people, they're suggesting that the universe was created in some kind of big bang. And the people believing in that idea were so stupid that they proudly adopted the Fred Hoyle's term of abuse for them hmm. as a description of their theory. <laughs> well, there you have it. It's funny. I had an I had an astronomy professor in college, who uh, he was very he was very cynical, and he, he kind of had a Rodney Dangerfield vibe about him. And he uh, he did this whole shtick where he was like, yeah, if, if astronomers don't know what to, uh, what to say about it, they just say a collision did it. And <laughs> he was like, yeah, it's just a collision. And you made it as a joke, but he was like half serious about it. But then again, this is like ten years ago, so <laughs> but keep that in mind. Well, nice, in, to in your... Rodney, nice to hear Rodney Dangerfield being mentioned because I knew him long ago. Hmm. Uh, I knew all those New York comedians back in the '60s, like Joan Rivers, and and um, Rodney was a particularly funny one. Well, uh, given our limited time, we, we should probably get into the uh, paranormal. Uh, you use amazing terms in your book, such as inorganic living matter. So before we get into the paranormal, can you uh, mention how plasma is, as you say, self-organizing and uh, that sort of thing that might lead it to be interpreted as a form of life and how it might be um, transmogrified into what we're going to talk about? Excellent Excellent question. Well, um, plasma can exist as a gas, as a liquid, as a solid, and as crystals. So it has many forms. When it was first discovered by Sir William Crookes in 1879, the man who invented the vacuum tube, um, he called it radiant matter, and he said uh, that it was the fourth stage of matter, the others being gas, liquid, and solid. As with with water, you can get it as a liquid. You can freeze it, and it becomes ice, and you can evaporate it, and it becomes steam. And that's the perfect model of what have been called the three stages of matter. And then uh, Crookes said, well, you know, there's obviously a fourth stage, and he had discovered it. We now call it plasma, which, by the way, has nothing to do with blood plasma, which you get in hospitals. It's a different use of the word. And so um, when you get... Um, plasma in these different states, the the thing that it needs to have to become really interesting is dust. It must contain dust. And when it does, um, it can become what is called, technically speaking, a dusty complex plasma. That's the three words used to describe this particular type of plasma. And it's it's been proved in laboratory experiments by some of the plasma physicists who have been working on the fringes of the science um, to be capable of self-organization uh, using a um, process which is often called emergence. That means it develops emergent characteristics from apparently from nothing um, and spontaneously itself. That's called self-organization. And they've, they've proved this in the lab with small plasmas, obviously not space ones. And um, what then happens is that it can evolve to such a state of complexity that it can spontaneously begin to develop um, a rudimentary form of intelligence which becomes more and more and more complex and, in fact, turns out to be similar to what we now call AI. And presumably it goes further than that. So 
considering that the universe has so much dusty complex plasma in it, and that our sun consists of dusty complex plasma, for instance, and all the stars do, and all those nebula clouds, which you see in the space photos of distant space, which have weird shapes and so on, um, they are probably all intelligent. And that's um, something to give us um, pause for thought, because if we think we've got uh, brains, what about them? Yes, uh, one... Uh I've rubbed elbows with a few shaman here and there in different countries, and uh, they always, the indigenous peoples almost always believe that everything has a, a quote-unquote spirit, whether organic or inorganic, and one wonders how much, and you get into this a little in the book, uh, our remote ancestors anticipated this or knew about it. Well, I mean, even in, like, Second Temple Judaism, right, there's, there's this whole idea of... Um effectively it's it's like it, even i mean even in a lot of ancient cultures it's there was this idea that the, that the every that there was a, a sort of like a spirit or a god that kind of was behind everything but it's but it was i think it's a bit more complex than that cuz english is trash at this but essentially the idea is that the layers of reality right not every you know it's not just okay well you know we have the physical world we have the mundane, the spiritual, we have the political, the the economic, we have, you know, all of this stuff. They're all separate things. I, I find, especially in the modern world, we tend to compartmentalize everything. And it's like, okay, well, we have this over here neatly organized, we have this over here neatly organized. But there was this idea um, that I think Philo of Alexandria came up, sort of ex- was explaining to the Romans in, in his writings, because he was essentially writing, well, this is what all this means to the Romans. That there was this idea that um, there was a, there was a spirit behind you know not just everything. I think spirit's not even the right word. There was there there was some sort of spiritual entity that was behind and worked alongside with like uh, most things, right? So there was a horn that was blown. Um, I forget if it was around Passover. Uh, yes. Yeah, where they they would blow the horn and Rams like. Horn. Yeah, the ram's horn, but there was this, but it wasn't so much the horn, but there was the spirit of the horn that went out with the sound, and it was like this whole thing, or like even if you look at like this idea in like Psalms that like people go to, you know, go today, and they're like, what the heck does that mean? It's like, you know, there, because nobody wants to talk about it, ancient astrology, nobody cares about that, um, that there's this idea that there's this line that goes throughout, you know, all of the earth, and that there was this this cosmic order and understanding that all these these sort of beings participated in. Now, you know, we can get really granular with it, pardon the pun, and and get really into the nitty gritty of it and say, well, you know, it's all it's all just physics and stuff. But symbols are symbols for a reason, you know. Even if it has no sort of cohesive intelligence as we would understand it. The idea that this was a part of the culture of many different cultures, pretty much every every culture throughout the world in, in pre-modern times, I think that that's that's something to be to be you know not scoffed at. Well, um, all of this can be um, looked upon as true now on the basis of understanding the nature of the physics of dusty complex plasmas. Um, the plasma world basically underlies the whole of what we naively imagine reality to be as perceived by our physical senses. Uh, plasma is everywhere. It's within us. It's around us. There's plasma in every cell in, in our bodies. 
Um, this was approved by my great friend Peter Mitchell, who got the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1978 for discovering this, that there are these proton currents uh, going across the membranes of every cell in every body. And, um, and so that's, that's a plasma flow. And, and I maintain that we are all bioplasma beings because bioplasma is the, the word used for plasma can, that's alive or within organic entities, and, and, and that we temporarily incarnate in the physical bodies, and when they wear out, we are forced to leave them, and we revert to our normal condition, which is to be completely plasma entities without being uh, made of atoms at all, and that we spend most of our time, uh, which I believe is eternal time, because I don't believe anybody dies, um, right. In the plasma state, we we come here for brief sessions of learning and testing and and attempting to get things done with great difficulty because it's so difficult to get anything done because everybody's always trying to stop you. And That's true. Life life is full of obstacles and they're all kind of perverse people who don't want anything good to be done because they're perverse and 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 so it's very very difficult and we have to keep our spirits up and we have to. Um, keep our optimism going, and we have to prove that we're good people and that we're tough and resilient and uh, that we we can cope with all of this because it's a test. We're all being tested the whole time, every day, and uh, our goodness is the desired result. It doesn't matter whether you can be good to the whole world or good to one person. It's the quality, not the quantity, that counts. If you're a good mother and you really, really love and benefit your child, then you are just as important as a world leader. It's the quality of your goodness that's important, and it's nothing to do with the quantity. Okay, um, well, in your book you say you were going to avoid theology, so I'll skip past the applied theological uh, thoughts there, and get right into a case from 1998 that uh, I dealt with. Ben was only six. Uh, so so needless he, to say, I was involved. Well, not, not quite. <laughs> uh, so uh, the question is, uh, leading in from your uh, statements about uh, plasma beings. Now, I know you've read some of our work. I don't know if you've run into this one. Uh, it was a case in Rhode Island here, and um, I saw with the naked eye what I interpreted as a parasite. It was white, it was like lightning, it looked like plasma. It even had arms. And later on I got a photograph of it, uh, which I said I would send you, but I think I, think I forgot. Sorry about that, I will. Uh, so this did not strike me as any sort of, you know, former person or whatever. It struck me as an alien sort of life form that was preying upon the energy of this family. Uh, and we approached it as such, and we pretty much licked it. So what say you about, uh, it, it, would that be a, uh, would that fit into the, uh, the sort of uh, cosmology, the ontology you have uh, expressed? Well, there are bound to be uh, plasma parasites of the kind you describe, and and people who have a weak um, uh, self 
could be invaded and um, become hosts. One really wonders if the the psychopaths who seem to rule the world, somebody like Putin, for instance, whether he has been basically taken over because he was rotten to begin with. But, you know, he's... um, um, and look at Hitler. He's the perfect example of somebody who was unbelievably boring and dull, except when he started to speak, and then he was possessed by some demonic power. And um, he was a he was a nobody who became a somebody through a means that's by no means clear. So I think that uh, you've probably hit upon something. Um, you know, it seems that there are parasites at every level of existence. Uh, there are fleas, there are mosquitoes, and, and there are probably um, plasma parasites. Yes, we run into them all the time. Um, I, it's a little early for our break, but I did want to ask you before our break, um, uh, I, I can't help but get into some of the theology. You said we are being tested. Uh, who or what is testing us? Or is it self-testing? Well, you're certainly really getting down to the uh, nitty-gritty there. I think it's both. I think that our higher selves are testing whether we're measuring up uh, to uh, our true selves in the difficult conditions that we find here, because we often let ourselves down, not just others. But also, I believe that there are higher entities, and um, that they are interested in, in sorting out the wheat from the chaff. Uh, and we do that ourselves. We are, when we fail in terms of our character uh, by becoming wicked, then we are self-condemned. I don't believe that there's a panel of judges sitting waiting to, to um, pass judgments on people. Um, I, I think that we pass judgment on ourselves and that uh, we are self-condemned if we turn wicked. But uh, if we don't turn wicked, then we're uh, considered a great success story. And I think that there is another life in in the plasma world and that it's stratified and that um, very good people uh, go to a higher level than very bad people. Uh, I, I, I could elaborate on that, but you probably don't want to get theological. We get there when we get there. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Uh, all right, well, why don't we take our mid-show break? Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 12:40 a.m. and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our fascinating guest, Dr. Robert Temple. So don't touch that dial. It's time for the annual Breakfast with the Saints at the Saint Anne Austin Cultural Center. Enjoy a breakfast buffet under the center's magnificently frescoed ceiling. The breakfast will be held on Sunday, April 30th from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Tickets are $20 in advance or $25 at the door. Tickets are available at Bilo's Flowers, Creative Impressions, The Honey Shop, Timeless Antiques, Vos True Value Hardware, or visit the St. Anastasia Cultural Center website. Casey Kasem has unlocked the American Top 40 vaults and is replaying original shows from the 80s. This week, Casey takes you back to April 5th, 1986. That's when Robert Palmer was addicted to love. The Thompson Twins were king for a day. Stevie Wonder was overjoyed. And Janet Jackson asked, what have you done for me lately? You'll hear those songs, all the top 40 hits, and the long-distance dedications from April 5th, 1986, right here 
on American Top 40, the 80s. Radio. And welcome back to WON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. And we are talking with, uh, it's behind the paranormal, we're speaking with Dr. Robert Temple, all the way from the UK. And uh, why don't we go to, uh, uh, you're starting to smell the uh, brain power burning around here. So let's uh, go to a question from, or a couple of questions from uh, Peter Shelley in Bogota, Bogota, Colombia. Yes, and Peter writes to us, uh, Dear Dr. Temple, um, previously you did a lot of investigations into the uh, the mysteries surrounding the Great Sphinx of Egypt. Uh, Can you update us on that? Oh, well, I'm glad to hear from somebody in Colombia who is aware of the work that I did on the Sphinx. My wife, Olivia, and I wrote an entire book called The Sphinx Mystery, which um, uh, which contains at the back a huge appendix uh, consisting of everything every pu- ever published about the Sphinx from ancient Roman times up till the year 1837, when it became new- too numerous and we had to stop. And it's all there in one book. And, and uh, I translated the German, Olivia translated the French. So you've got the complete... Uh, uh, Bible of the Sphinx um, for 2,000 years. At the back of our book, it saves you trips to many libraries. So that's one thing. Now, I did manage to get inside the Sphinx, which was a very interesting experience, because uh, there's a small hole uh, in its bottom. In fact, Olivia likes to joke about the fact that the, the photo that she took of me with my head sticking out was Robert with his head sticking out of the Sphinx's ass, which is oh, what, all right. it, what it really was. Uh, I hope I haven't used a word that's too rude for some sensitivities. It's meant to be a joke. Anyway. Well, he wanted um, it not to be too rude for the FCC. Yes. Oh, well, the FCC. Um, uh, or the FC don't see. Mm, <laughs> truly. <laughs> so <laughs> the Federal Communications Non-Seeing Corporation. Okay. So I was inside the Sphinx, and there's a, a kind of pit uh, carved out of the rock um, inside there, which is fairly well known by, uh, to the few people who've managed to get in, because it's a very narrow hole, and if you're fat, you simply can't get in. It, it's impossible. And um, to my surprise, when I finally got in there, I saw that there was a tunnel also. I wasn't expecting a tunnel. I hadn't heard anything about it. There was a tunnel going upwards and round the right haunch of the Sphinx, uh, which was obviously an ancient tunnel. Um, It looked a bit dangerous, and it was propped up with very um, unsteady uh, pieces of wood, um, which seemed to be pine, um, and they were a bit loose. Um, I touched one, and it it fell over, so it wasn't really holding anything up at all. It's here. I decided not to crawl all, all along this tunnel because I I was worried that it really might seriously collapse on me. I didn't think that was a good way to go. And and so um, what I uh, did is I photographed this and I published that in the book as well. But what I was able to work out eventually was that um, the tunnel had gone all the way through to the head of the Sphinx in ancient times where a priest could crawl along there and speak an oracle through the front, the, the Sphinx's face and people would think that that was um, a god speaking. 
there's a bit of trickery going on there. And what the reason why it doesn't go through to the front anymore is that in 1926, a French uh, person who was hired by the then king of Egypt uh, to tidy up the Sphinx for tourism uh, poured uh, concrete down there and he broke the tunnel and uh, in the middle and and he filled up the chamber that was beneath the Sphinx, which I, I forgot to mention. There really is a chamber beneath the Sphinx, but it's not original. It was what they call intruded. That is, um, and apparently in the 26th dynasty, the Sa'i period, um, they, they, they made a shaft down through the Sphinx's waist and, um, they, um, uh, they created a burial chamber down there and, um, somebody was buried down there because the remains of a coffin were found. And, um, I, so I have, published and, when necessary, translated um, all the uh, descriptions, the eyewitness descriptions of people who saw and entered this chamber over a period of 350 years. Now, why did the Egyptological scholars not know this? This uh, I cannot understand, except for the fact that very few of them seem to know how to use a library. They're good at Mm. digging, they're good at texts, but they can't collate references and look up old books, it seems. So I've, I've published all of these accounts of 350 years' worth of eyewitnesses who saw the chamber under the Sphinx. But it had hieroglyphics on the walls, so it was not original, because the Sphinx it was from a period before they put hieroglyphics on walls of chambers. And so this was all filled with concrete in 1926. A terrible act of desecration by this French idiot name I forget mm. and um, so all of this is in the book and then I was able to identify the face on the Sphinx because anyone who goes to the Sphinx knows that uh, it's a gigantic uh, statue the size of an ocean liner practically with a little tiny P on the, the top where there should be a head They're much too small and we all know that the Egyptians were obsessive about uh, proper proportions in their art and architecture and so on they would never have made a statue with a P for a head. And so um, it's obvious that the original head was missing, and the new head with the face was carved out of the neck of what had been a much larger head, which I suggest was a dog's head, and that uh, the Sphinx was by no means the body of a lion. It was the statue of uh, the crouching dog Anubis, who was the traditional guardian of the sacred necropolis. And uh, he was also a god, the god Anubis, uh, uh, connected with the dog star, actually, Sirius. And uh, so um, when the old kingdom came to an end, um, then there was a um, period of the collapse of about 150 years uh, when Egypt had no government and uh, no pharaoh. And the people were running around in mobs, rioting. <laughs> Things And it's very well known to all Egyptologists that mobs rampaged at Giza and that um, they smashed all the statues and that sort of thing. And at that time, it would have been very easy for them to uh, show their anger and fury by knocking the ears and nose off of the Anubis head. So and therefore basically leaving a, a, um, a stump. Now, when Egypt got back on its feet again in what was what's known as the Middle Kingdom, 
uh, and we had pharaohs again, uh, it was a bit embarrassing that the sacred um, uh, location of Giza had this uh, mutilated giant statue sitting there, uh, not what uh, is something that's good for the brand. And so it was decided quite sensibly to, to carve a face onto the neck and give the sphinx a face. Well, so then the question is, whose face? And there was a particular pharaoh, and I've identified him, who apparently said to the people who were going to do the carving, um, you know, I, I have an idea that I might rather like my own face to be on the Sphinx. So that duly happened. And I've identified him and proved that it's his face. And his name was Amenemhet II. He was a Middle Kingdom pharaoh. Now, I was preceded in this by a German uh, Egyptologist called Burkhardt, who, uh, Ludwig Burkhardt, who had um, studied the headdress of this face, and he had done a, a chronological history of headdresses, and he had proved that the only period in, in Egyptian history that could have carved that particular headdress was in the Middle Kingdom. So he was on the right track, but I was able to pin it down to which pharaoh by photographing the face of the same pharaoh that's perfectly preserved in the Louvre in Paris and, and publishing it side by side with the photograph of the face of the Sphinx, and you can see it's the same man. So there you go. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Sphinx and never dared to ask, as Woody Allen would say, is in my book, The Sphinx Mystery. But uh, how is the Sphinx related to plasma? There? But let, let's get back to plasma. Um, there's a fascinating quote associated with your book. I'd like to read it. Clouds of plasma have evolved double helixes, banks of cells and crystals, filaments and junctions, which could control the flow of electric currents, thus generating an intelligence similar to machine intelligence. We may, in fact, have been looking for signs of extraterrestrial life in the wrong place. Could you comment on that incredible statement? Yes. Well, you know, our SETI programs are looking for little green men um, on other planets far, far away, hoping to find somebody, and they say they haven't had any luck. Who knows? Um, but uh, in a way, that doesn't really matter, because the universe is, is evidently full of highly intelligent entities, which are uh, inorganic. That is, they are not composed of atoms, and so they are plasma entities. And our sun would be an example. I, I believe the sun is conscious and highly intelligent. And um, and that it's um, uh, basically in charge of the solar system. We are actually within the sun because the solar system is filled with the solar wind, which is coming out of the sun. And the whole solar system is basically the sun. It's just that it's quite diffuse in its outer reaches. And the little hard bodies like the planet Earth can hurtle around safely in it. But we are within the sun. We are creatures of the sun. You could say that the sun is therefore um, the um, the big guy on the block, and um, and we're the um, we're the followers. Uh, we're the little guys on the block uh, following this leader, uh, and and so he would be the big chief for us in this region of the galaxy. But the galaxy is full of much bigger stars. And, of course, the galaxy itself is probably super intelligent. And the intelligence gets up and up and up and higher and higher and higher, and the higher entities become 
bigger and bigger and more and more impressive. And um, there's this hierarchy which seems to go on endlessly. And the higher up you go, the more intelligent the entities are, and they're all made of plasma. Now, what do your colleagues think of this? Well, I'm not a full-time academic. I never have been. I've, I've been appointed twice a visiting professor, which is quite different because um, I, I don't depend upon the academic world for my livelihood or career. Good. Uh, and um, I, I wouldn't be able to live on a campus for very long without going bonkers because, frankly, the academic world is, is more vicious and, and uh, uh, more dangerous and than uh, the world of politics. I mean, I, I'd sooner be uh, in, this, in the snake pit of Washington, D.C. Than, than be on a university campus where everybody's stabbing each other in the back all day long, every day. It's a, it's a real viper's nest. And um, I don't want to be involved with any of that. Uh, so I'm what they call an independent scholar. I proudly claim the description scholar because I spend all my time researching and that's what I do, and I like it, and and I know that I'm very good at it because when I've occasionally sat side by side with another researcher, I go through things ten times faster, and 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 that shows that I'm quite good at uh, my job. I like that. So um, when you talk about my colleagues, I don't have any on a campus, and I don't have any regular colleagues, um, and I suppose most of the scientists I know would not consider me a colleague because I'm, I'm not officially employed uh, in the academic world. Um, I've met many, many, many um, famous scientists. In fact, I, I don't know why I did it, but I kept a list of the Nobel Prize winners I had met, and, it, and, uh, and I've added to it from time to time, and it comes to 79. Wow. That's a lot, and yes. I can hardly believe it myself. And I... I even when I was 18, I met my first um, famous scientist and spent four hours alone with him. That was Paul Dirac, D-I-R-A-C, who is a kind of legend in the field of quantum uh, mechanics. Mm-hmm. He was a wonderful man, very, very shy, but I won't go into all those anecdotes. But um, I, I have known and, and met many, many, many famous scientists and uh, I've kind of been tutored by them all in my private conversations. It, it's a wonderful way to learn science when you talk to the top people and you can get them going. Like I, I used to have these conversations with um, John Wheeler, um, who's I think his last academic post was the University of Texas, and uh, when he would come over to England to lecture at Oxford, and uh, everybody would leave except for me, and then he and I would sit around for a couple of hours. Uh, talking about physics and uh, and he'd crack his jokes because he was uh, you know some of the best scientists have got a great sense of humor and, and you never stop laughing and in between laughing you talk physics hmm. that's what he was like I really really liked John Wheeler and uh, there were lots of lots of famous scientists that I could describe but the thing is that um, I don't think that it makes a lot of sense to talk about my colleagues because I'm too independent so if you rephrase that and say, what do plasma physicists, for instance, think about what you're saying? I would have to say that I've been pretty straight about quoting them and citing them accurately. 
I have not misrepresented anybody, and I'm very meticulous with my footnotes. So there's nothing in my book that it, it emanates from um, from a scientist that isn't footnoted and completely and totally accurate. So uh, anything else that's in the book is my interpretation and elaboration of that. Well, do they approve of that or not? It's hard to say because a lot of them are too frightened being members of this uh, organization of official academia uh, that if they were to open their mouths, they might not get the next grant, they might not get promoted, mm-hmm. uh, their careers could be at risk. There's a tremendous fear uh, of stepping out of line. If you become even 1% renegade, uh, your career is finished. The most outspoken of the famous scientists um, that I've either known or haven't known but have quoted have been retired so that they were free to speak. And um, uh, that's that's where they really say what they really think. So the ones who are still working, they, they might think all kinds of things. They might really like what I'm saying, or they might be frightened of it, or they might disapprove of it. They might say, Temple's uh, uh, full of nonsense. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, who knows what their opinions are, but they are, in any case, they're afraid to say it. And I must say, not a single one of them has yet criticized me. I haven't had any criticism at all from any scientist, um, even though a lot of them have my book because I sent my book prior to publication to many, many famous scientists uh, so that they could see it for themselves before it came out. And if they had anything to complain about, they could. Not a single one has done so. I haven't had any criticism so that must mean something. On the other hand, there's only been a few of them who have actually praised me uh, and the book. So, uh, And they are the ones who are particularly courageous, um, uh, and, and particularly the couple of them who are, as I say, retired, and they can't suffer any consequences anymore because they're out of the game. So they can, ex- they can say what they really think. But having alerted everybody in advance, that I was publishing all this about plasma, um, there's been this uh, silence from most of them. But I interpret that positively because if they could see anything that was wrong with the book, they could thunder away at me and criticize me and say I was some kind of nut, but nothing like that has happened. Just, um, I think, kind of a, I don't know, it's just a, when there's silence and it's not a critical science, silence, then um, I guess you can only interpret that positively because you're not being attacked. Yes, true. They can't claim to be ignorant because I sent the book to them and wrote to them and explained it to them so that they knew exactly what was going to happen in advance. Well, Ben has a question, but very quickly, can you tell us about your website where people can find more about the book, A New Science of Heaven? Well, um, I also made an audio recording of it. So there's an audio version which you can get and download from Audible. Mm-hmm. And I recorded it myself. I recommend it, although it is 12 hours long. Now, I have to say that the book is also written for non-scientists. <laughs> Not a single equation is in it. And it's um, it's written for the uh, the general reader. 
Uh, very much so. And it's the only book that tells you all this because there's no competition because I'm the first person to do this. And um, none of the science writers have, have told the, the public anything about the plasma world. So where can you find out more? I would say I, I haven't, uh, I meant to create a website specifically for the book and there is a holding page for one, but I haven't done it. And um, I, um, I have a certain amount about it on my personal website, which is robert-temple.com. And also, <laughs> uh, all of my technical papers are on researchgate.net. You type in my name and my papers come up. Um, but otherwise, you'd have to go to the footnotes in my book and start reading all the references, of which there are hundreds, really hundreds, uh, uh, because I'm one of those fanatical perfectionists Mm-hmm. who have to find out everything on the subject and list everything. And I even have to get the middle names of all the scientists and their dates. I just like complete information. So many people don't know, for instance, um, the middle names of famous scientists, but I always have to find out the middle names. It's just a, a silly thing. Uh, well, that's okay. Well, let's get Ben's question in here. Uh, sure. So this, uh, I, I kind of want to, well, 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 I'll throw out the question, and then we'll see where it goes. What is a body? Well, uh, if you're talking about physical bodies, uh, I think we know the answer to that. But I believe that there are many bodies which don't have any atoms in them at all and which are entirely made of plasma, and um, they come in all shapes and sizes. And so um, the... The most basic answer to the question is to say a body is an entity enclosed by a sheath or membrane or skin or whatever. Um, you know, the largest organ of the human body um, is the skin. It weighs more and if taken off. And um, with plasma, blobs of plasma are called plasmoids. And they can be of any size and shape. And they, they are surrounded by sheaths, which are double-layered, similar to the double-layered uh, membranes around cells. So I think um, an entity which is bounded could be called a body. Hmm. All right. I'm reminded of Origen um, in, in, his, in his works on the idea of ascension. And there was this idea that was attributed to him that he believed that when, when people uh, <laughs> were, were sort of, you know, deified, they kind of became like round Almost, there was that whole idea. But I'm 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 more interested in this idea because it sounds like you're taking. It, correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds very Platonistic, and I'm going to explain. So you know you had you had Plato with his idea of the sort of the mind bo- the or well the the body spirit dichotomy that really you know the body is just a house for the spirit etc. But in this case we can just substitute the word spirit with plasma. So the whole point of a body is just to experience stuff, correct? That's the whole point of experiencing experiencing things in this particular physical plane. Yes. 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 To not not just to experience, but to test yourself and be tested. So who determines the? So where where are the morals and rules determined for this test? Well, I don't think they're determined in in the sense of a sacred text or something carved in stone on a tablet on Mount uh, Horeb. 
Um, I think that they are basic to the universe. The, the, to have compassion and empathy for other entities is fundamental, and the more you do, as long as you remain practical at the same time and don't just become foolish, um, then uh, your your goodness level goes up. But I, I would I would criticize the current craze for virtue signaling, which is false goodness, because a, a really good person does not need to signal. If you have to signal your virtue, you're not virtuous. No, I, well, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, but I, I, I find that there's there's this problem that Thomas Nagel points out in his book, What Is It Like to Be a Bat?, which is the idea of understanding our consciousness. So the whole premise, we have a very short period of time, but essentially he asks the question, what is it like to be a bat? And the answer is, well, we don't know. We just know what it's like to be a human in a bat body. We'll never know what it feels like to flap our wings. We'll never know what it's like to use echolocation. We will only know, wow, I'm doing bat-like things. And we do not know what it is like to be a bat. So if that is the case, we really only know things through our sort of very narrow experience of reality, through which all of this is is interpreted. So my so it, the the whole problem of the subjectivity objectivity whole 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 thing it, it's I, I I don't disagree with the science I, I know it's it's there you know but the the problem that I'm having is the phenomenological portion of it the experience of it um, the idea that you know that there's this sort of thing out, outside you know it, it's if something's entirely alien right. Something's entirely outside ourselves. There, let's say there's a universal truth for being compassionate. It's I, I I think it's hard personally for me to understand that there's this there's an alien pre, there's this whole thing outside of human reality because all we know is what we've experienced and what comes down to us through experience. How do we know that the universal this is a universal concept? Is my question. Well, when you talk about what's it like to be a bat, of course that is. Fascinating. Uh, I don't know that book, but that sounds very interesting. It's actually a very, very interesting way to to talk and think. Um, when we look deep into our dog's eyes or a cat's eyes or uh, what we come across a wild animal in the jungle, you know, you, I have a friend who once came within inches of a, of a leopard in a tree and they stared at each other. And, and and you're basically communing or attempting to commune with an entity of an alien form. And and I would believe that in the plasma state, we can probably know what it's like to be a bat. But as long as we're confined within a particular type of physical body, namely a human one, as, as is our case, then we're limited to its experiences. But once we're freed from that, I think that we could experience what it's like to be a bat if we really want to and, and there may be batternauts mm, indeed well, I, I do like that term <laughs> there, there we have it okay uh, we're almost just about out of time uh, Robert it has been wonderful we will continue our conversations off the air truly fascinating absolutely and uh, just very quickly well no, no we're out of time I was curious for, the, for our next show if you had any questions for us regarding our work since we uh, have uh, come along the same lines here and similar conclusions. So, But thank you so much. We'll leave that for another day. And uh, 
Stick with us if you wish. We could talk off the air. Ben, let's take away our announcements. Indeed. So you can look for us at the Exeter UFO Festival in September for my dad uh, at the uh, Arizona Dowsers Conference in October. Uh, visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find nearly 1,200 hours of our regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on WON AM and FM. Also, you hear many of these broadcasts on the major podcast platforms and app apps, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. And you can also check out uh, so many interesting things that we're doing, um, up to and including all the things that we have going on coming up. But we also have uh, Easter coming up for the next two weeks, uh, regular Easter, which is on the 9th, and we'll do a rebroadcast of the popular show with Peter Robbins, UFO and Alien Imaging in Advertising. And then on April 16th, it is uh, Orthodox Easter, uh, Pascha, if you will. We'll be doing a rebroadcast of our show with Jillian Harris on Reincarnation, Have We Met? And we'll be back live on April 23rd, which is uh, actually my wedding anniversary, uh, with Open Lines. Oh, boy. Yeah. Is that a problem? No. Okay. <laughs> no. It's bring, so bring my daughter along. Yeah, yeah. Special, special Open lines. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, we'll leave you today with a thought from, well, we don't really know who said it, uh, moon dust in your lungs, stars in your eyes, you are a child of the cosmos, a ruler of the skies. No. I'm, what? I wish I was flying around, then I could prove it, and then we could see could what it was like. Bat. Exactly, we could truly see what it was like to be a bat. Very good. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Local and live at 99.5 FM.